Hello and welcome to Talking New Retina. This is a new series exploring the latest news and developments in the world of retina. We'll also keep you up to date on the latest events, activities and strategy of the European Society of Retina Specialists, Uretina. I'm your host, Jonathan McRae. This week's episode is a VR journal club. The topic is subretinal hemorrhaging and the uretina-sponsored tiger study, which we'll get to in a few minutes. First, though, great news for anyone who's missed meeting colleagues and friends and discussing retina science in person over the past two years, because the 22nd Uretina conference is face-to-face in Hamburg this year and registration is now open. Early fees are available until the 15th of July and you'll find all of the information and be able to register on the Uretina website. If you can't wait that long for some scientific discussion, you're in luck, because later this month we have two digital events that are sure to be of interest. On the 16th of June, Professor Eduardo Midena and Professor Rainier Schlingerman are chairing an Uretina educational webinar on the subject of diabetes and vascular disease. That will be on June 16th at 8pm CEST or 7pm BST. And then on the 29th of June, Professor Baran Bodaghi and Professor Carlos Pavezio will be chairing a case club with an international faculty that includes Professor Sophia Andrudi, Dr. Aniruda Agarwal, Professor Monsef Kharala, Professor Alfredo Adan and Professor Janet Davis. This promises to offer some really good learning and discussion which can include you with our live Q&A. That's the case club hosted by Professor Bagram Bodaghi and Professor Carlos Pavezio on June 29th at 8pm CEST or 7pm BST. You can find more information and register on uretina.org. Now it's time for our journal club, which looks at subretinal hemorrhaging. Our chairs are Professors Grazia Pertile from Sacro Cuore Hospital Negroir Verona and Siegfried Prieglinger from LMU Munich. Our faculty are Dr. Emilia Maggio from Sacro Cuore Hospital Negroir Verona as well, and Dr. Saskia van Romende from the Rotterdam Eye Hospital, as well as Professor Timothy Jackson from King's College London, who will be telling us about the Tiger study. Really looking forward to the discussion. Grazia, over to you. Thank you, Jonathan, and uh, welcome to this uh, Journal Club episode of uh, Uretina. We are going to speak about uh, subretinal hemorrhages uh, this evening. In fact, uh, patients uh, with uh, neovascular AMD and submacular hemorrhages are usually excluded from the uh, clinical trials. So we don't know exactly what to do and what is the best treatment in these uh, uh, cases. Uh, Recently, there was a publication, a kind of update on the uh, Ivan uh, study conducting in the UK. And Saskia is going to speak about this uh, paper and to present uh, this publication. Please, Saskia. Thank you, Grazia. So the IVAN trial regarding anti-VEGF treatment for submacular hemorrhage in AMD patients is a study published by Meta and Associates in 2021 in the American Journal of Ophthalmology. The incentive for this research was a caveat in the literature. It is well known that the first line of treatment for AMD is anti-VEGF. However, when a submacular hemorrhage is present, the effect of anti-VEGF is uncertain. And as Grazia just mentioned, because the, the large phase 3 trials, such as Anchor, Marina, and Harbor, excluded patients with a submacular hemorrhage containing more than 50% of the choroidal neovascularization. The IVAN trial did not have the same exclusion criterion. This study attempts to assess the visual and morphological benefit 
of anti-VEGF in AMD patients with submacular hemorrhage compared to patients without the submacular hemorrhage. The IVAN trial is a multi-center study with 23 hospitals in the UK participating between 2008 and 2010. The inclusion criteria of the IVAN trial were treatment-naive exudative AMD patients of over 50 years of age with the best corrected visual acuity of at least 20 over 320 Snellen, which corresponds to 0.06 decimals. Exclusion criteria were diabetic retinopathy, more than 8 diopters of myopia, large lesions over 12 disc diameters, and thick subfoveal blood. The thickness of the blood was not specified. Patients were treated with monthly or PRN reniducibub or bevacizumab, and they were assessed with fundus photography, angiography, and OCT. When the submacular hemorrhage was present, the location, the size, and the thickness of the blood compared to the thickness of the neuroretina at baseline were reported. The primary outcome of the study was the best corrected visual acuity. Secondary outcome measures were the size of the subretinal fibrosis, the size of the atrophic scarring, and the central retinal thickness. In total, 535 patients were included in the study and about half of these patients had a submacular hemorrhage baseline. The median visual acuity in the submacular hemorrhage group was 20 over 58 Snellen, which corresponds to 0.35 decimals. The median visual acuity in the group without the submacular hemorrhage was slightly but significantly better. It was 20 over 44 Snellen, corresponding to 0.45 decimals. Other factors that were associated with a lower baseline visual acuity were the presence of subfoveal CNV, the presence of intraretinal fluid, and the absence of subretinal fibrosis. There was no significant interaction between these factors and the presence of submacular hemorrhage. Now, important to know is that the size of the submacular hemorrhage was generally small in this study. In 61%, the lesion was extrafoveal. In 89%, the hemorrhage was smaller than one disc diameter, and in 93%, the hemorrhage was thinner than the neuroretina. The location of the hemorrhage was most often subretinal. In 14%, there was also intraretinal blood, and in 12%, there was a sub-RPE hemorrhage. A key finding in this study was that three months after anti-VEGF injections, the hemorrhage resolved in 70% of the cases. The best corrected visual acuity improved equally in the submacular hemorrhage group and the group without submacular hemorrhage after 12 and 24 months of anti-VEGF treatment. In both groups, subretinal fibrosis and atrophic scarring worsened and the center of the neuroretina became thinner, but without a significant difference between the groups. Patients with a larger hemorrhage a hemorrhage containing more than 50% of the lesion or a subfoveal hemorrhage at baseline did not have a worse visual outcome after 12 or 24 months of anti-VEGF injections. So, in conclusion, this study showed that in the majority of patients with a submacular hemorrhage and a best corrected visual acuity of 20 over 320 Snellen, the hemorrhage resolves within three months of anti-VEGF treatment. 
and they have a similar functional and morphological outcome after anti-VEGF treatment compared with patients without submacular hemorrhage. Thank you very much, uh, Saskia, for your presentation. There was also a previous uh, paper published in Ophthalmology in 2014 by Kim and co-authors on the same topic. It was a retrospective study, but which are the differences with this Ivan study? Yeah, that's quite interesting, Grazia, because this study is quite similar, but has a very different inclusion criterion. They included patients with a lower visual acuity, with thicker subretinal blood, and with longer duration of symptoms. So the patients that they included had a baseline visual acuity of ranging from hand motion to 20 over 30 uh, snellen, and the mean uh, central retinal thickness was 610 micrometers. The duration of the symptoms had a mean of 28 days. So these patients had a much worse baseline, uh, and they had a much worse outcome as well. In the study of the IVAN trial, the submacular hemorrhage was generally small, thick subretinal hemorrhages were excluded, and they had a baseline visual acuity of over 0.06 Snellen. In the IVAN trial, the subretinal hemorrhage was generally much thinner, and the visual acuity was much better. Yeah, I think uh, this is a, a very important point, uh, because in the IVAN study, the majority of patients uh, had a hemorrhage uh, that was not subfoveal located. And we know that there are usually two problems uh, with subretinal hemorrhages. One is toxicity from the blood itself. And the other one is uh, the possibility of uh, an efficacy of anti-VHF drugs uh, if there is a thick uh, hemorrhage under the fovea. So... What do you think? Which is the best way to evaluate the condition of an eye with submacular hemorrhages? The position, the thickness, uh, uh, the extension of a subretinal hemorrhage? First of all, the position. If it's not in the center of the fovea, uh, I think you could first start with anti-VEGF. Unfortunately, from the IVAN trial, we don't have much information about the thickness of the hemorrhage. They didn't measure everything with the same OCT, so they don't have enough data on this subject. They only measured if the thickness of the blood was thicker or less thick than the neuroretina. But I think this would be a very, very important outcome. And it would be interesting to have some kind of cutoff point if uh, a thickness of the blood would be less than a certain amount that anti-VEGF would be better or have a worse outcome. Other question? I think the, the good thing on the Ivan trial uh, is that we, we learned that we don't have to be afraid of a little bit of blood. We don't need uh, RTPA, which especially in, this, in these times where we have, we're running out of having a lack of uh, this uh, medication. Is, at least in, in Germany, we, it was told us that it will take until 2023, Göring will be able again to deliver so when we have cases with only a little amount of blood, anti-VGF therapy alone is fine. But the problem we have is not these are not these cases. It's the cases with huge amounts of blood, and then we want to get rid of the blood. The question is how to get rid of the blood, and this is 
what we will learn in our next paper. But before we go to the next paper, let's ask in the round whether you have some comments for Saskia. I always find it surprising because if you, you look at the sort of the, the early literature, it really suggests, and I think that probably my own impression is that you know, these, these are catastrophic events when patients have a big, a big hemorrhage. And I think the perception is that anti-VEGF is not enough for the bigger lesions. But I think it's all about case selection. You know, we're looking at patients whose you know, median visual acuity at presentation wasn't really that different to patients without a submacular hemorrhage. So I think it's all about case definition, isn't it? And if you define the case in one way, then you can only generalize to the same population. So I think the key thing is to identify what the population is in the, you know, in the paper that we're looking at, and then only generalize you know, to that same group of patients. But I think the message that anti-VEGF on its own is, is reasonable for some patients is you know, entirely valid. Definitely. And even in the study, they mentioned that subfoveal location did not give a worse outcome. So even if you have a small amount of subfoveal hemorrhage, it can still be treated with anti-VEGF. Emilia? I think that the favorable results find in the Ivan population is explained by the presence of small, extra, mostly extrafoveal and thin hemorrhages. And in these cases, anti-VEGF monotherapy may be a very good option. For example, anti-VEG monotherapy may be a good option for hemorrhages that are located not properly under the fovea, but near to the foveola. In these cases, the pneumatic displacement, for example, can be even be worse because it can shift more blood into the central, the, the central macular area. These are the cases where... Uh, the monotherapy with anti-VEGF is uh, the best option. But in uh, all the other cases, which are the majority of large, thick submacular hemorrhages involving the fovea, anti-VEGF alone, without the removal of blood away from the macular area, may be not enough, since it is not enough to prevent the toxicity of blood to photoreceptors, which is a cause of irreversible and severe damage. Thank you, Emilia. So our next guest is Emilia Machu. She's working together with Grazia in the Sacro Fiore Don Calabria Hospital in Nica. <laughs> Grazia, hope it's right. Uh, You're so right. It's my Italian. So Emilia brought uh, their interesting paper on intravitreal RTPA and uh, SF6 gas for submacular hemorrhage displacement in AMD. Looking behind the blood, it was published in 2020 in Ophthalmologica. The main idea of this retrospective trial was to evaluate the effectiveness of this treatment, how it displaces the hemorrhage on the one hand, but on the other hand also to evaluate the post-operative diagnostic tools in order to find the best additional treatment option possible. I think it's a really great paper. Emilia, I'm looking forward to hear your summary. Thank you so much, Siegfried. Actually, in our study, we evaluated the effectiveness of intravitreal TPA and gas injection for the displacement of large submacular hemorrhages involving the fovea, secondary to neovascular IMD. And we also focused on the opportunity this treatment provides after blood displacement to examine macular features that were previously hidden by the blood. In our study, this examination guided the choice of secondary treatments for the macular nevascularization responsible for the bleeding. The study included was retrospective and included the 96 eyes. 
main inclusion criteria were a hemorrhage duration of less than 14 days and a hemorrhage size of at least three disc areas involving the fovea. All eyes re- received 50 micrograms of TPA injected via the plana through a 27-gauge needle, followed by an intravitreal injection of 0.3 milliliters of gas, SF6. Then patients were instructed to maintain face-down position overnight and as much as possible during the following week. The primary outcome measure of the study was the hemorrhage displacement rate. It was evaluated at one week after the procedure. We found that in most eyes, specifically 76%, the hemorrhage was displaced away from the macular area. And this allowed the postoperative multimodal diagnostic testing that was previously prevented by the presence of blood. After blood displacement, most eyes received additional treatments. In particular, in 19 eyes exhibiting severe macular damage, no additional treatment was applied as they were judged unlikely to improve from any treatment. In the remaining eyes, 45% underwent anti-VGF injections, 35% submacular surgery, and two with polypoidal choroidal vasculopathy received photodynamic therapy. Secondary outcome measures of the study were, first of all, the correlation between macular findings revealed by blood displacement and the secondary treatments. And the aim of this analysis was to evaluate if certain treatments were more frequently associated with certain imaging findings, thus suggesting that the selection of the second therapeutic option had been guided by the evaluation of macular features allowed by blood displacement. Therefore, all images obtained after blood displacement were examined by two independent observers, and the main macular features were integrity of outer retinal layers, the presence of RPE tear or central RPE atrophy, the presence of leakage from an active neovascular lesion or a fibrotic scar with no leakage. Results of the statistical analysis revealed a significant association between macular findings and secondary treatments. For example, eyes that didn't receive additional treatments were more frequently those that exhibited complete outer retinal layer loss or a fibrotic scar with no leakage. Similarly, eyes that underwent submacular surgery were more frequently those with a central RP tear or central RP atrophy, and eyes that underwent anti-BAGF injections were those with, with leakage from an active neovascular lesion. These associations were statistically significant, and these results demonstrated that in our population, the information obtained through multimodal imaging allowed by blood displacement significantly affected the therapeutic choice. Finally, we also evaluated the visual improvement achieved in the study population. It was evaluated over a mean follow-up of 35 months. We found that in eyes that received the secondary treatments at the one-year follow-up visit, 41% gained at least three lines 
and 32% at least six lines compared to baseline. Visual improvement was statistically significant up to three years. In conclusion, in our study, intravitreal TPA and gas injection was found to be effective for the displacement of submacular hemorrhages secondary to neovascular AMD. And it also proved to be useful to allow postoperative testing. This testing was crucial for the selection of subsequent treatments targeting the underlying pathology, with the treatments leading to significant visual improvement. Really, these are really great results. I think 75% displacement is just amazing, to be honest. I'm not sure whether we would have, we have the same results in our uh, institute. Do you think that a timing display role, so are the results of, would be the, the results of displacement, not official acuity, of course, would they even be better if you treat it in the first days of the bleeding? But that, yes. That do, that does, isn't there a big difference between first day and, and uh, day 14? I think that timing is crucial. It is uh, our routine clinical practice uh, in our hospital for patients presenting with subfovial hemorrhages to perform TPA and gas intravitreal injection within 24 hours of a patient presentation to our clinic. Timing is uh, crucial. Uh, moreover, in this uh, number of eyes, 76%, we included patients with both complete and partial displacement. Complete displacement was uh, considered uh, as the absence of uh, blood under the fovea uh, in an area within 1,500 microns centered on the fovea, while partial was considered the absence of blood under the fovea, but with traces of blood within 1,500. Therefore, uh, 76% is a high number, but including all these uh, patients. If we consider only the complete displacement, it is 56%. Okay, okay. So um, if, if we look at even larger hemorrhages, does the subrectinal injection of uh, TPA during vitrectomy even play a role in your institute at all? Or when do you decide to primary go for a vitrectomy into an, in a subretinal injection? Usually we do not offer intravitreal injection in the cases of a massive submacular hemorrhages, for example, those extended to the equator, or if a vitreous hemorrhage is present at the first examination. I think that it may be reasonable to consider intravitreal TPA and gas injection as a first-line treatment option before considering a more invasive procedure. Since uh, intravitreal TPA and gas injection does not preclude a subsequent surgery, vitrectomy can be performed if uh, intravitreal approach is not uh, successful. Okay, so uh, would you agree if not to do a subretinal injection as long as the bleeding is not over the uh, vessel arcades? So this is yes. kind of, kind of a, a simple rule we have. It's, if it's a, a very high bleeding and it's, it's going to the uh, vessel arcades, we do a subretinal injection and smaller hemorrhages can be done with a, just with an intravitreal injection of our TPA and gas. That's yes, it. that's reasonable. Question for you, Emilia. It was a, it's a very nice study. 
uh, I was uh, wondering, you don't use anti-VEGF at this first surgery when you do RTPA. And is there a special reason yeah. for that? Uh, is it because you have a better yes. assessment of the leakage after? There are several reasons. One is that the previous studies suggest that TPA may deactivate Flibercept. The other one is that uh, without anti-VGF, we have more space into, into the vitreous cavity for gas. Um, and the sufficient amount of gas is uh, crucial for the displacement. Um, so we prefer to uh, perform uh, intravitreal injection of gas and TPA and later, after one week, the injection of uh, the anti-VGF. Another reason is that after blood displacement, as previously mentioned, it is easier to evaluate macular features and understand if anti-VHF is really useful. Yeah, I think one important point in this study is that uh, a significant number of patients uh, were not treated at all after the blood displacement because the very condition was evaluated as uh, no possibility of recovery of vision. And this is an important point as well, to decide when it is not worthwhile to treat a patient. I think it uh, should be taken into consideration as well. Absolutely agree. This, but this, this needs long experience, like you have. And honestly, I saw the results of your macular rotation. You know, 60 degree, I was really impressed. And I wanted to ask you, do you still do the surgery and what's the indication for you after having uh, successfully replaced the blood? Now, we, we still have some indications for macular translocations or um, choroidal transplantation. There are, of course, very limited indications because, uh, as we said, in the majority of cases, anti-VHF therapy is enough or we decided that it is not worthwhile to do anything. So the indications uh, are, are very large hemorrhages we cannot displace, and uh, even with TPA, or it is uh, up to the equator, or the RPE tears. I think the very best indication for this kind of submacular surgery are the uh, RPE tears, because we know that when they involve with fovea, in the majority of cases, they are going to develop a fibrotic uh, tissue, even if you keep injecting them. And so when you have a large RPE tear, it is uh, a good indication for submacular surgery. We do usually um, macular translocation in cases of bad visual acuity in the other eye. This for two reasons because uh, when the uh, surgical results of macular translocations are a little bit better than for choroidal transplantation. And the other reason is that uh, if the patient uh, has a poor visual acuity in the other eye, there is a limited risk of uh, double vision. And this is usually the one indication. Of course, uh, when you go and translocate uh, retina, you should be sure you make yourself sure that there is a healthy area of RPE where you can translocate the fovea and this is uh, why TPA and gas become important because uh, you really see if you can do a translocation or not if the RPE where you want to translocate is healthy or not. 
And uh, for the first eye, we usually do choroidal transplantation. But as I said, the indications are very, very limited. Let's move on to the TIGER study. Tim is going to introduce this really very important initiative uh, all over Europe, initiated by the Euretina. It will prospectively investigate the role of an even more invasive subretinal RTPA in, uh, application, uh, together with vitrectomy for submacular bleeding. Tim. Good. Well, thanks for the chance to join the podcast. Um, and as you say, I'm going to just talk us through the, the TIGER study. So the paper is the protocol. So if you uh, go to trials, it's in, published in 2020. And it's it's a nice thing to get protocols out there in the public domain before you do the trial, because it, it, it ties your hands. You can't then report something else having said you're going to, you know, once you've said, put in, put in paper what you're going to do, you're going to have to stick to it. So big credit to your retina for, for moving into you know, trials of this scale. I think it's a, it's a really important question. Um, and I think this will address you know, a chunk of it at least. So the aim of the, the parameters, if you like, of the trial were defined by your retina. And the idea is to look at the safety and efficacy of vitrectomy and subretinal TPA for submacular hemorrhage just due to wet AMD. And it's an RCT. And the control group is basically anti-VEGF monotherapy. So we're comparing surgery to anti-VEGF monotherapy, fairly intensive anti-VEGF monotherapy. So we're hoping to have about 60, 65 centres across Europe. Um, it's as say, funded by Uretina through Fight for Sight. It's a superiority trial, so we're aiming to show that surgery is um, superior to uh, standard of care, which is anti-VEGF monotherapy. Obviously, we can't mask the trial to vitrectomy, but it will be observer-masked in terms of the main outcome, which is um, visual acuity. Surgery um, can involve a FACO, if that's what sites do. We don't want to tie the surgeons down to things that they wouldn't do when the results are out. So if they want to do a FACO at the time of vitrectomy, they can go ahead and do that. We use a, a subretinal TPA. It's 10 milligrams and 10 mils of water that's diluted down to give 100 micrograms per mil. And the surgeons can inject up to 0.25 of a mil maximum. We, I think we normally need a lot less than that. Uh, but it's injected through a very fine bore cannula, such as a 38-gauge cannula, through the retina um, following vitrectomy. Patients are all given the same gas, so we're going to use 20% SF6 to try and standardise things. And the patients will sit on their back for 15 minutes uh, to allow the... the TPA to remain in position and they'll sit upright face forward at 45 degrees for five days and they'll sleep on the operated cheek for 10 days. Control, as I said, is anti-VEGF monotherapy. So both arms will end up having a flibicept monthly for three months and then two monthly mandated dosing out to a year. So the idea is to give very intensive anti-VEGF monotherapy to give the control arm as, as much chance as possible of, of you know maintaining vision. And subsequent cataract surgeries are allowed as well. Primary outcome is a gain of 10 letters. So we've got a categorical outcome here. We're not looking at mean acuity. We're looking at patients gaining 10 vision. We want to show that the treatment can sort of produce a substantial increase. But we have a number of secondary outcomes, which include the mean acuity, reading speed, uh, visual field, um, VFQ25. So all the kind of things you'd expect to in terms of functional outcomes. Uh, and then also looking at the reading center, we'll look for the sort of area and the size of fibrosis um, to look at whether or not it produces a, a structural benefit as well. So the patients are going to be randomised, um, 210 in total. So the lesions are going to be at least a disc diameter in size, and visual acuity can range from counting fingers right up to 70 letters. And we'll let the, the clinicians decide themselves as to which patients they think are appropriate to enrol. We're going to exclude patients who've had a hemorrhage for more than 15 days, just because um, we don't, you know, we, we worry that actually if the hemorrhage has been there for too long, it might sort of dilute any potential benefit and mean we can't find a signal between the two arms. 
So the 210 patients will be randomised half to surgery, half to a flibercept, and we'll follow them up over the course of a year and then do them primary analysis when they when they beat 12 months. So in terms of progress, uh, we're sort of gathering a fair amount of um, momentum in the UK. Brexit hasn't helped, and understandably, COVID has also proven um, you know, proven something of a challenge, to say the least. But I think as the sort of COVID situation improves, um, we are hoping to sort of expand up into Europe fairly quickly. Uh, what's interesting is that the, the sites are recruiting better than we imagined. It's actually a relatively rare disease when you're looking at these big hemorrhages, but we still need to get a lot, a lot more sites on board. So we're always looking for new centres. If, if you're interested in taking part, then you're, you're more than welcome to get in touch. Thank you very much, uh, Tim, for the presentation of this interesting study. We really wish uh, to start enrolling, enrolling the patients uh, and uh, to see how the results are, but because as we said, there are very few prospective clinical trials on subretinal hemorrhages, so we, we really need to learn more about uh, the indications, uh, the results, uh, when to do what. You, you include, uh, on the one hand, patients with really very bad visual acuity, but also patients who have quite a very good visual acuity. And the, the limit is kind of a subfoveal, subretinal hemorrhage, of at least 125 micrometer. And so I'm a little bit afraid if these patients will then get a subretinal injection. Uh, this probably is very close to the fovea. You're not afraid that we're going to do any harm for these patients? Or, or to, ask in other, to, to ask in other words, why did you actually include the patients from the Ivan trial where we learned that we don't actually need RTPA? It, it's a very good question. And actually, um, we, we get that question from, from two different angles, actually. So there are some people who feel that if the hemorrhage is very large, it wouldn't be appropriate to randomize people to anti-VEGF monotherapy. They feel that surgery is the only way to, to treat these patients. And I think there's been a flavor of that in our discussion today. There are other people who feel that, you know, anti-VEGF monotherapy is entirely appropriate um, as, as a management, you know, for, even for very big lesions. Conversely, you're quite right. If the if the lesion was very small and the vision was very good, you could argue against enrolling the patients. I think you can give the injections. I think what you can do is inject slightly to the side of the lesion and you can give a very small volume. We, we specify a maximum volume, but we don't specify a minimum. So, so they can inject as little as possible. But one of the key things I'm going to be interested to look at in this trial is, is which patients do people enrol? So what we've been very clear with this trial is, is say to the investigators, you've got to make the decision whether or not you offer this trial to the patient. And if you're someone who believes I'm really not comfortable randomizing a very large lesion to anti-VEGF monotherapy, then you, don't, then you don't enroll the patient. You treat them as you feel is best. And equally, if you think this lesion is just too small to need an intervention as big as a vitrectomy, then you don't enroll the patient. And what I hope to, to find out at the end by, by allowing a degree of flexibility in terms of what the investigators do is that the investigators will define the population. And I think methodologically that's the best option because then we then find out, we, we, we describe our population at the end of the trial and we, and we may find that the lesions are, you know, not there are not many small lesions and we might find that there are not many very, very big lesions. We then describe that population and the results will be generalizable to, you know, to those patients only. So I think what we do is we allow the, the, the clinicians to define the population and then we generalize from that group in terms of the outcomes of the trial. 
but it's a really difficult question. You know, we said, should we tell them exactly who to recruit and they should only recruit the people that we think are the best or do we give them some flexibility? I think it's really difficult. But on the, on the other hand, uh, I think for the small ones, we, might, we, we may get the answer by doing subgroup, uh, subgroup analysis, which patients are the patients who need subretinal injection and which not. So this is maybe the first, the, the first trial who will give us this answer, at least for the smaller uh, hemorrhages. Uh, so I'm actually, I'm actually quite, at the end, I was quite happy when I was thinking about it that you included them because we were the ones get an answer and say, okay, if the lesion is two uh, disc diameters or three or whatever, then you need it. And if not, we learn from the TIGER study, it's not necessary. It's a very good point. And actually what we did, um, as you know, when you're stratifying your population, you don't want to have too many stratification factors because that, that can be quite problematic. So we had to really decide which were the factors we thought were the most important in terms of stratifying the population. And, and needless to say that the size of the lesion, which is one of the stratifying factors, so we can do the analysis you're talking about, um, made the shortlist very easily. So we, we agree with you. We think that actually it, looking at the influence of lesion size on outcome is absolutely critical. So we'll stratify by lesion size. So hopefully we can we can still make generalizations regardless of which size of lesion there is. And we will do a subgroup analysis based on that. Maybe you can give us an update when we can start. <laughs> we are looking for. Yeah, I think the flexibility in inclusion of the patients is a very important ethical point of this study because we usually in clinical trials we try to classify and, and define everything. But from an ethical point of view, it is very important. Maybe it is a little bit difficult to get uh, the conclusions and to get indeed uh, a number of patients for every subgroups, so to speak. But I think it is, from a ethical point of view, is uh, critical. And, and, and I agree with you. I mean, often what happens is that we do a clinical trial and then, and then we roll out a technology and actually a much broader group of patients. And then we sit there wondering why, why were the results in the real world not as good as they were in the trial? And that's because the trial criteria, I mean, if you look at the list of exclusion and inclusion criteria in a clinical trial, they can easily run for two pages. And, you know, there's a big a big sort of argument for designing pragmatic trials rather than these, these trials designed to force an outcome that you won't then achieve in the real world. Indeed. And it is why we know not enough about the treatment of submacular hemorrhages, because uh, uh, as we said in the beginning, these patients are usually excluded uh, from the clinical trials. So we are really looking for the results uh, of the TIGER study. So Tim, could you finally uh, explain why you excluded the intravitreal injection option? Because it would, be, would have been great to have three arms, you know, just the injection, separate injection and the uh, anti alone. I, I agree. Um, and I think actually in a perfect world, it would, it would be nice to have that third arm. Um, the, the parameters for the trial were defined by your retina. Um, so we didn't, we didn't have flexibility to add in the third arm. So you could make an argument. We've, there's, a, there's the STAR trial coming out from France, hopefully before too long. And if that shows an equivalence, although whether or not it will be powered to do that, I'm not sure. Um, you, could, you could make an argument for a third arm. I think, I think there, are, there are slight pragmatic difficulties with that. One is that 
I think what you would want to do is a non-inferiority trial for that trial. I think what you would want to show is that injections were as effective as surgery. So, you know, they weren't inferior to surgery because they were certainly much going to be such much quicker and more convenient. So if you could show that an intravitreal treatment was as, as effective as a vitrectomy, then it doesn't have to be better. It just has to not be worse. So I think you would then want to do a non-inferiority against surgery. We might also want to do a superiority against anti-VEGF monotherapy. But then the trial starts to expand in terms of size. And, and actually, when you look at the, the, this condition, it, it does meet the criteria for a rare disease. And having to recruit another you know, 100-odd patients is you know, potentially quite a big ask for a, for a relatively rare condition. But I, would, you know, I agree with you. I think that would be an interesting trial to run. Thank you. Siegfried? Maybe we could do this together. Uh, everybody of us, just 30 seconds. His standard operating procedure for uh, his, his actual standing, his or her actual standing operating procedure for subretinal hemorrhages without having the results of Tiger yet. Tim, you start. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, at the minute, of course, we are recruiting onto Tiger. So, so, so that is, you know, where many of the patients end up. But I, I would have to, you know, I would say small lesions, anti VEGF monotherapy, medium lesions, intravitreal therapy, and very large lesions surgery. What is medium? So within the arcades, I think if it was beyond the arcades, I would suggest surgery. Um, I don't really have in mind a, a, a lower boundary for that. Okay. Katia? Uh, what we do at present is uh, TPA, uh, intravitreal TPA and gas, and then depending on the condition, only anti-VEGF or nothing or surgery. Okay. Saskia, in the Netherlands? So we normally give anti-VEGF for small lesions, and we tend to do more often subretinal RTPA and gas with retractomy for larger lesions. It looks like we're doing all pretty the same. I'm pretty the same with Tim. Anti-VEGF, if it's only a very thin subretinal blood, then um, in, inside the arcades, not too thick. We do uh, intermittent injections. Thick, if it's getting thicker and thicker, if it's a small, it's not too large, not too big diameter, we already start with the subretinal injection. And for the very huge ones, we have to do the retinotomy and do the subretinal surgery. I think now you, you can conclude our podcast. Let's see. <laughs> it was really a pleasure to have you here. Thank you very much for all your contribution. And we're really uh, waiting. We are really waiting for the results of the TIGER study. And we hope to learn more about uh, the best management of subretinal hemorrhages. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you so much to our chairs and faculty, professors uh, Grazia Pertile, Siegfried Priglinger, Dr. Emilia Maggio, Dr. Saskia van Romonde and uh, Professor Timothy Jackson. If you're wondering, by the way, um, Siegfried didn't skip Emilia because she works in the same hospital as uh, Grazia. They have, of course, the same approach. That's it for uh, this episode. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please subscribe and rate and let people know about Talking You Retina. For more digital content, including webinars, case clubs and podcasts, visit uretina.org. And let us know what you think of the program too. You can email us, podcast at uretina.org, particularly if you'd like a paper or a trial or a particular area of retina to be explored in the podcast. I'm Jonathan McRae. I'll see you next time on Talking You Retina.